starting a new sermon series in the new year in the book of Judges. And so we're going to look at Judges chapter 1 and into a few verses in chapter 2. And so uh, please listen as I read Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with, him, with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. And they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adani Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adani Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adoni Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Jerusalem attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev, and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahimon, and Talmai. From there, they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks and captures Kiriath Sefer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother took it. So Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him in marriage. One day when she came to Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. When she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what can I do for you? She replied, do me a special favor. Since you have given me land in the Negev, give me also springs of water. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. The descendants of Moses' father-in-law, the Kenites, went up from the city of Palms with the people of Judah to live among the inhabitants of the desert of Judah in the Negev near Arad. Then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephath. They totally destroyed the city. Therefore it was called Hormah. Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. As Moses had promised, <clears throat> Hebron was given to Caleb, who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the tribes of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them. They put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his family. He then went to the land of the Hittites, where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, Ibliam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulon drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalal. So these Canaanites lived there among them. But Zebulon did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Aaklab or Axib or Hebla or Hephak or Rehob. 
Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath. But the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. The Amorites were determined also to hold on in Mount Harris, Aijalon, and Salbim. When the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. Now chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I have brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. And yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim, and there they offered sacrifice to the Lord. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that though unfamiliar, this, to many of us, this is a part of your word, your inspired word. And so we pray, Lord, that you would meet us in your word, speak to us, give us perspective on our lives. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Men. This is the start of a new series in Joshua, which is going to take us uh, well into May. And the obvious question is, why Judges? Uh, a few of you have told me that, they've, that you've never heard a sermon series on Judges before. And my hope is that we don't discover in this series why that is. <laughs> I have a chosen Judges, not just because I like a good challenge, but also because I think it's a good book for our time. So I was doing the preparation for this series. I read one commentator who suggests that Judges is a book for when things are coming apart at the seams. Judges covers the Old Testament period between Joshua and the monarchy. It's a time when there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Judges represents a time in Israel when traditional authority structures were crumbling, when there were no respected leaders whom people could look up to. Joshua was gone. There was no great King David yet. And so everyone governed themselves. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone marched to the beat of their own drummer. Israel was a thoroughly individualistic culture. It was a moral free-for-all. Do as you please. Israel was no longer one nation under God. There were many gods in Israel, and they took more seriously conforming to the Canaanite culture than following God. With all that, I think this is a good book for our time when things are coming apart at the seams. Judges reminds us that at even these times, God is still in charge. He's still at work, even when there's weak people in leadership. God is still at work when sin abounds. God's grace much more abounds. Through times of deep spiritual disobedience and decline, God calls his people to spiritual renewal, which is a theme I want to draw through our series in Judges, this theme of spiritual renewal. It begins in Judges 1 as this call to obedience. God calls his people in Judges 1 to a life of obedience. And this chapter, I think, shows us three things I want to lay before us. What this call is, what God's call is, how God's people start obeying, and why they don't finish. 
what this call is of God, how God's people start, and why they don't finish. So first, what God's call is. Judges begins with these words after the death of Joshua. And so clearly, the book of Judges is the follow-up to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua is about how God leads his people into the promised land and gives them the land, but the people have to take it. There's hard work. There's battles to be fought to take the land, to take possession of the land. And so at the beginning of Joshua, God says to Joshua and the people, be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the laws of Moses that you may be successful. Which is to say that taking the land for the people will require spirituality and bravery. At the end of the book of Joshua, it's clear that the job's not been complete. They have, the people have not completely taken possession of the land. So that brings us to the beginning of Judges. The Israelites, with Joshua gone, no leader to ask, asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answers, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. God is reiterating this covenantal promise for his people. I'm giving you the land. And he calls them to take possession of it through trust in him and obedience to him. And so what the rest of Judges is about is God's people struggling. It is, it, it, we'll see this. God's people struggling to take possession of the land, their spiritual inheritance from God. Now, the problem that I need to address at the outset, it, the problem with God's call is that it involves what is called harem warfare. Harem is a Hebrew word that refers to things devoted to God, often by total destruction. It's used in verse 17 of our passage when Simeon totally destroys this city. This word harem is not used frequently in, in Judges, but this concept undergirds the whole book, so we need to take a moment to understand it. Harem warfare is explained in Deuteronomy 7. Let me read these verses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. So here's harem warfare. It refers to total destruction of one's enemies. No mercy, no covenant, no intermarriage. And some of you are sitting here, maybe many of you are saying, how is this in the Bible? Does this not make God essentially a genocidal tribal deity? I mean, how is this not divinely mandated genocide? You know, wiping out the Canaanites and taking their land? You know, we hear that, and that stands against everything we believe in in 2024. How can, this, how can this God mandate this? So to make sense of judges, we've got to make sense of harem warfare. Let me suggest to you that there are two reasons why God calls his people to drive out and destroy the Canaanites completely. Harem warfare is first an expression, I think, of divine justice. You need to know that the Canaanites were not innocent people. In fact, they were a morally wicked people. They had no sexual boundaries. They were violent. They were occultic. And so this conquest of Canaan is not genocide. It's not an ethnic cleansing. God doesn't call the Canaanites to be destroyed because of their ethnicity. It's not because they were Canaanites, but because they were wicked, rebellious sinners. And so what's going on here is really moral judgment exercised to the human agent of Israel. God is 
going to exercise divine justice at the end of history. That's what gives our world moral meaning. It is that there is a God who will exercise divine justice at the end of history. And therefore, it's his prerogative to bring that judgment forward in history at any point he chooses, like with Sodom and Gomorrah or here with Canaan. Harem, harem warfare was an expression of divine justice. It was also an expression of spiritual protection for Israel. Here's a second reason why God called his people to completely drive out the Canaanites, to make no treaties with them, to not intermarry with them. Because otherwise, the people, the Israelites, would fall under the spiritual influence of the Canaanites. And God says, here's what's going to happen. If you leave the Canaanites to live among you, they will become a thorn to you and a snare to you. Hey, what's a thorn? A thorn is someone presses in your skin. It makes you miserable. A snare is something that entraps and enslaves you. And so God is saying to his people, don't allow the Canaanites to, to, to continue to live among you. Drive them out for your own spiritual protection and good. I think we might understand the ethos of harem warfare a little better if we think about how we would deal with cancer. See, when you get a cancer diagnosis, how do you respond? I mean, you immediately have this conversation with the doctor, how are we going to get rid of the cancer? All of it, completely. If you get surgery, you know you will encourage a surgeon to cut that tumor out with a good margin to make sure that you get all the cancer cells. If you get chemotherapy, you put these strong drugs in your body that make you very sick and even kill some of your good cells in an effort to get every last one of those cancer cells. You show cancer no mercy. You don't even want to leave one cancer cell in your body. You don't say to the doctor, hey, hey doctor, let's get most of the cancer. If we don't get it all, it's okay. No, no worries. We don't say that. See, for the same reason, God calls his people to drive out the Canaanites as an expression of divine justice and as spiritual protection. Because for the people of Israel, the Canaanites were like spiritual cancer. They were a snare and a trap. They would bring spiritual harm. The question then is, how then do we apply judges to today? At the outset, let me be clear. Judges is not a call to destroy our enemies. There is no political entity today that is the equivalent of Israel. The, the, the United States is not the new Israel. There is no country that is the equivalent of Israel, and so therefore there is no warrant to treat our enemies this way. Even for Israel, this was a unique and limited event. God wasn't giving his people instructions as to how to treat all their enemies all the time. This was a unique, limited event. And in the New Testament, the, the, uh, the New Testament makes it clear that for us as Christians, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of evil. God is not calling us to take out our human enemies, whether they're spiritual, cultural, or political. God is not calling us to take out our enemies. We're called to apply judges spiritually and individually as Christians first, and then, and then secondarily corporately as a church by asking these questions. What has God called us to do spiritually? What commands has he given to us, and are we obeying them? So secondly... Let's then look at what God's people do with his commands in Judges 1. How do God's people start obeying, secondly? Verses 3 through 18 is a description of how Judah obeyed God's call and went up to fight against the Canaanites to take possession of the land. 
We're given a number of examples of how they do that. Let me just point out two this morning. In verse 4, when Judah attacks, the Lord gives the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands. So the, God is doing this. It's not just the Israelites militarily. God is doing this. 10,000 men uh, are defeated. This is a significant victory. It includes the defeat of King Adani Bezek. And of course, a troubling thing is how the Israelites treat him. They chase him down. They catch him. They cut off his thumbs and big toes. And you say, what in the world? Why this, why this cruelty? Why this violence? So then I point out that Adani Bezek himself is not outraged, but he accepts this as divine judgment. Verse 7, Adani Bezek says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. Which is to say, Adani Bezek was a cruel, sadistic tyrant who cut off the thumbs and big toes of 70 kings and reduced them to, to groveling under his table to pick up scraps. And so now as he treated others, he is being treated himself. And even he, as a pagan king, recognizes the divine justice in this. It's another reminder. God is bringing divine justice on the Canaanites, using Israel as his instrument. Adonai Bezek is another example of the Canaanites that were being driven out. This was not an innocent man. This was a sadistic, evil, cruel tyrant. He's morally wicked. And so victory in Bezek simultaneously was God giving his people the land, but also meeting out divine justice on a wicked people. The second example is, I want to point out, is in verse 11. Judah advanced against Debir. Caleb was a leader in Judah, and he says, give, I, I'm going to give my daughter to the man who attacks and, and takes, uh, captures this city. It is, in other words, a call to obedience, call to Judah to Trust in God's promise and take the land. Othniel hears this challenge and he takes possession of the land and he receives Aksa in marriage. And Aksa, interestingly, we're given these details, urge, goes on to urge Othniel to ask for more land. And then she goes to her father to ask for water rights for the land that she had received as her wedding dowry. And just as a point of background, you need to realize that there are spiritual overtones to the land. The land represents God's blessing, his promised inheritance. And so there, there are spiritual overtones to the land, and all three of these, Caleb, Othniel, and Aksa, are pre presented as model Israelites who demonstrate courageous obedience in response to God's promises, especially Aksa. Even more than her father and her husband shows tremendous faith to take the land and settle in it and enjoy it. An echo of Rahab that outsider woman who demonstrated more faith in God than the Israelite men. See, all these are models of what faith in God's promise looks like and obedience to it. In response to God's promise of land, all these step forward in faith to pay, take possession of their spiritual inheritance. Consider this common scenario for us at this time of the year. You're, you find yourself very sick with a high fever, and so you go to the doctor, and the doctor examines you and makes a diagnosis and gives you a prescription right there on the spot and says, here, I'm going to prescribe for you these two different medications, and I prescribe for you lots of fluids, fluids and lots of rest. And, and the doctor says, if you follow this prescription, I'm confident that you will get better in a matter of a few days. 
So you receive that as very good news, and you, re you return home very optimistically. But after you go home, you do, as we are wont to do, a little online diagnosis. You enter in the diagnosis into Google, and you come up with your own prescription. And you decide you're only going to take one of the prescribed medications and substitute one of your own. You forget to drink a lot of fluids, and you take the extra rest with a grain of salt. And so after a few days, you're still feeling terrible. Still have a fever. So you go back to the doctor, and the doctor says to you, how are you feeling? And you say, unfortunately, not so well. The doctor says, I'm sorry to hear that. Are you following the prescription that I gave you? And you say, well, sort of. And the doctor says, well, what, what does that mean? Are you taking the medication that I prescribed? And, and you would say, well, I, I'm taking one of the medications. And he says, well, are you drinking a lot of fluids? And you say, well, I, you know, I didn't really think that was that important. And he says, how about the rest? And he say, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. The doctor will say, I can't help you if you're not willing to follow my prescription. Do you, don't, don't you trust me? And if you say, well, yeah, of course I trust you, you're my doctor. The doctor might say, well, then why don't you do what I say? Trusting God in the same way means doing what he says. It means following God's commands. See, if the Israelites want to take possession of the land, they must follow God's instructions, his commands, which are a prescription, a prescription for their health and blessing and well-being. And in the same way God's commands to us are his prescription for our spiritual health and blessing and well-being. God's commands are not arbitrary to make our life difficult or inconvenient. They are the pathway to spiritual health and blessing. Do we believe this? Do we believe that God's commands are prescriptions for our health? Do we believe God's commands are the pathway to well-being and blessing and spiritual inheritance? God's people start obeying, but they don't finish. So thirdly, we need to consider this together. Thirdly, why God's people don't finish, beginning in verse 19. If the account of the Israelites taking possession of the land ended at verse 18, we might say, well, that was a pretty encouraging report. The Israelites are obeying. But then you get to verse 19, and there are hints that their obedience was incomplete and only half-hearted. Verse 19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. And from this point forward, there's this constant refrain. You heard this as I read this lengthy passage. They did not drive out the Canaanites. They did not drive out the Canaanites. They did not drive out the Canaanites. Still, it's possible after reading chapter 1 to conclude that the Israelites did their best. They really tried. But the Canaanites were too strong. And besides, they had iron chariots. Verse 19 says they were unable to drive them out. So perhaps they tried. We did our best, God. But we were unable to do this. God doesn't leave us in any doubt as to what's going on. God provides his perspective on chapter 1 in chapter 2. The angel of God reminds the people of God's covenantal promises and their responsibility. Chapter 2, verse 1, God says through his angel, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you, will not, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, and yet you have disobeyed me. 
See, God is reminding the people of his covenantal promises to them and their responsibility. But he says, yet you have disobeyed me. You've not done what I called you to do, to drive out the Canaanites completely, to break down their altars. And you've done what I told you not to do. You've made covenants with the Canaanites. So it wasn't inability, it was disobedience. See, maybe Israel said, well, you know, God, God we tried. We really tried, but we, we can't do it. They're too strong for us. And God comes in in chapter 2 and says, no, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. And so now we look back on chapter 1 and see why God's people don't finish. In verse 19, they're unable to drive out the people because of the chariots of iron. And you say, well, that's a pretty good reason. Until you're reminded of what Joshua said to the people in the past. In preparation for this moment, Joshua said, though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron and though they are strong, you can drive them out. The psalmist puts it this way. Some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. In other words, this was not inability, but unbelief. This was trusting more in military might or the lack of it than in God's promises and power. Verse 22, the tribes of Joseph attack Bethel, and the spies instantly see a man coming out. And they say to this man, if you show us the way into the city, we will treat you well when we conquer the city. So the city is put to the war, it's to the sword, the Canaanites are, are, are defeated, and this one Canaanite informer is spared. And you read that account, he's like, oh, that, that's kind of like a shrewd military strategy. Until you realize that this shrewd military strategy involved disobedience. It involved making a covenant with a Canaanite instead of honoring their covenant with God. And the evidence of, of this is the account ends, this little mini account ends by not stressing the victory, but stressing this Canaanite that was spared, who actually goes on and builds another city and establishes himself more fully in the promised land. It's disobedience at the end of the day. Verse 27 begins this, these little verses about Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulon who do not drive out the Canaanites. The Canaanites continue to live among them and they put them oftentimes into forced labor. Perhaps because it made more economic sense and required less effort to, to, dry, to, to enslave them than to dry them out. How subtle it is what that economic advantage and convenience trump obedience. Verse 32, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan do also do not drive out the Canaanites. And then there's this subtle but significant shift of the language. Now it's not just the Canaanites living among the Israelites. Now we're told the Israelites are living among the Canaanites, treating the Canaanites as a more established residence. The low point of all this is Dan in verse 34. The Amorites confine the Danites to the hill country. Don't even let them come down to the plains. This is complete and utter failure on the part of the tribe of Dan. And then verse 36, just point out, refers to the boundary of the Amorites, not the boundary of Israel. Because the Amorites are still there, and in fact, they're the ones de determining the boundary, not Israel. God says to his people, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of slavery. I led you into this land and gave it to you. And yet you have disobeyed me. Not outright disobedience, but blending in, conforming, compromising, 
partial obedience, but not full obedience. Half-hearted obedience, but not whole-hearted obedience. You see, not an outright rejection of God. That the people still weep when God confronts them. Not an outright rejection of God. But not complete obedience. Only a half-hearted one. That's why the God's people don't finish what they're called to do. The Great Dechurching is a book that was published last fall by two pastors in the metro Orlando area. They observed in their ministry that in the past 25 years, 42% of the city of Orlando stopped attending church. And as pastors, they thought this was curious. And so in 2018, they were simply two pastors who wanted to understand their context better so that they could be more effective and fruitful. They hired two social scientists to study the situation and quickly realized that their context was not unique, was part of the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. 40 million Americans who used to go to church at least once per month now attend less than once per year. And they have identified this and named this as the Great Dechurching, the largest and fastest religious shift in U.S. history. The social scientists that they hired conducted the largest and most comprehensive study of this dynamic. They had more than 7,000 respondents to this survey. And here are a few things they discovered. The number one reason why people stopped attending church was not abuse or scandal or hypocrisy in the church. That's what you might think. Those are factors, but that was not the number one reason why people left the church. The number one reason why people stopped attending church is simply they moved. So these two pastors report, roughly three-quarters of the people who left church did so casually for pedestrian reasons, including moving, the inconvenience of attending, kids' sports activities, or family changes like marriage, divorce, or having a new child. They also found that when people leave the church, it's not because they've left the faith. They found that 98% of de-churched evangelical Christians who mostly stopped going to church out of habit in the pandemic— and 98% of ex-evangelicals who permanently and purposefully left the church, 98% of both groups still agree that Jesus is the Son of God. So we're saying they're still orthodox in their beliefs, but they've dropped out of the church. And so I'm saying half-hearted discipleship is not just a problem in judges. So you like the Israelites. Sometimes for us it's not outright obedience, disobedience. It's drifting. It's blending. It's conforming. It's as simple as doing the convenient thing. Doing the thing that brings greatest economic advantage. Doing the thing that makes most common sense in this culture. It's making peace with things and saying, I'm just going to live with this. It's okay. That leads to disobedience. See, God commands us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And I realize it's a little unfair to put this challenge on the, on the wake of a snowstorm, the first snowstorm of the year. But, you know, ever since this, the live stream in the pandemic, how, how easy has it become to say, I, I'm just not, not going to go to church. I don't need to go to church. Just catch the live stream. Are there commands of God to which we say, I can't, I can't do this. But what we really mean is I won't. Tim Keller suggests there are three common places where this happens. God happens. God commands us, for example, to forgive. And we say, I can't. I, I can't forgive that. I, I can't forgive that person. Well, what we really mean is I won't. 
I won't let go of that grudge. I won't let go of my right to revenge. I want it. God commands us to tell the truth even when it's difficult. We say, I can't, I can't, I can't tell that person that. It would ruin our relationship. Well, what we really mean is I won't. I won't take the risk. I'd rather disobey than take that risk. God commands us to resist temptation. We say, I, can't, I, just, I can't stop this. I, I keep giving in. And, and it's true that, that the, there, there is a unique attractive power to sin that sometimes binds our will uh, very strongly. But we can also always reach out to get help. And maybe we don't reach out to get help because we say to temptation, well, I, I won't. I, I, I have to give in. I don't want to give this up. God calls us to a life of obedience as a pathway to blessing. The problem is that we oftentimes settle for half-hearted discipleship. There is a tension in this passage that continues throughout the book of Judges. God says to his people, I will never break my covenant with you, but his people continue to break their covenant with God through disobedience. And so here's the tension. How can God, a holy God, stay in relationship with a sinful, disobedient people? See, if God deals with their sin, you will have to destroy them like the Canaanites, but then that wouldn't be true to his love and mercy. If God ignores his people's sin to stay in the relationship, then that wouldn't be true to his holiness and justice. That's the tension for God. And he resolves it in sending his son Jesus Christ into this world to take our place on the cross as a covenant breaker. That's what Jesus was doing, was stepping into our place, our shoes, as a covenant breaker to take the punishment that our disobedience and our breaking of the covenant and our sin deserve, that we can be forgiven. So through Christ's death on the cross, God is both holy and just in punishing our sin in Jesus on the cross and loving in forgiving us our sin. And so now, my friends, God calls us to a life of obedience, and we will fail just like the Israelites. But because of Christ, there is forgiveness when we fail and a new spirit within for a wholehearted obedience. Not because of what Jesus has done and the spirit within. We don't say, I won't. We say, I want to. And with your help, I can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this illuminating, dramatic chapter in Judges 1 of your people. Your call to obedience and your people in Judges, starting to obey and not finishing it. Lord, we can relate. We start obey, uh, obey, uh, obeying, and then for a variety of reasons, we stop. We'll leave it halfway done. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus and the forgiveness there is for half-hearted disciples and the equipping in your spirit there is for a new obedience. Lord, help us to receive these things, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.